Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. This is Aaron, your host, and I am joined today by Sherry Goodman, who is a former U.S. Deputy Undersecretary of Defense. She focused on environmental security, and she is currently a senior fellow with us at the Wilson Center in the Polar Institute and in the Environmental Change and Security Program. Welcome, Sherry. Pleasure to be here, Aaron. Well, you have just a wealth of knowledge from the defense perspective, from the environmental perspective, and with some of the things that have been going on in the news lately as pertains to the Arctic, I really thought it'd be a good idea to bring you on to chat about the changes that are going on in the Arctic. The Arctic is hot or the Arctic is cool, whichever one you want to say. And I, I think one thing that we've noticed, you know, we do a foreign policy fellowship program for congressional staffers. And I, th I believe you've spoken at one or two of those events that we've done. And uh, congressional staff really take to our sessions on the Arctic because it's something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot in Congress, even though it's a huge policy area and one in which so many policy areas sort of come together at the top of the world. Uh, and we've seen in the news here, just in the last couple of weeks, a couple of items that are worth discussing. Number one, we've got a uh, word from the Biden administration that there will be a new ambassador at large for the Arctic. This is a bit of a an elevation, it seems like. We've had some special envoys before. We've had some representation on the Arctic Council but this is different. So I wanted to chat with you about that. What, what are your thoughts on this, uh, this new position? Well, thank you, Aaron. And it's a, a pleasure to be here with you. And I will say I just returned from Iceland uh, with a U.S. congressional delegation of over 20 members of Congress, uh, senators and representatives, uh, bipartisan group. And, you know, our focus was on Arctic security and energy. And indeed, uh, naming uh, the U.S. now naming an Arctic ambassador at large or naming identifying the position with the person still to be named is an important piece of, um, as I should say, upping our game in the Arctic. I mean, the U.S. is an Arctic power, an Arctic nation, um, but its presence in Arctic diplomacy has sometimes um, underrepresented its uh, its presence elsewhere in Arctic domain. So I think this is a good thing. All of our other Arctic partners have Arctic ambassadors in addition to country ambassadors. And this will help uh, elevate our focus on Arctic issues. It's ever more important now uh, because of Putin's war in Ukraine and the disruption um, in the historic um, cooperative spirit that... Uh, managed to pervade Arctic affairs, even during other times of tension uh, among uh, Russia and NATO and Russia and the U.S., um, you know, no place is isolated now. Uh, and so while there's tension among 
those Arctic nations and Russia's currently paused from participating in Arctic Council activities uh, by a decision of the other Arctic seven nations. I think it's very important that the U.S. now have a presence. Um, it's part of the U.S. being back on the diplomatic stage. And the urgency is so great because, as you noted, um, climate change is happening more rapidly in the Arctic than anywhere else on the planet. I mean, temperatures are rising at least four times as much as the rest of the planet. And in some parts, in parts of Svalbard, seven times. So we're seeing massive melt um, with uh, impacts that will be felt around the world. I mean, the Greenland ice sheet keeps cities like Miami and Houston, um, uh, you know, above water. And now, I mean, uh, uh, without water, and now they're going to be, if that Greenland ice sheet melts, they will see substantial sea level rise. You you mentioned something that has not been as as uh, trumpeted over the few last few years, where there has been, even though there's been an increasing tension with Russia until this latest war with Ukraine, there was still cooperation in the Arctic on the Arctic Council, and there was cooperation in space with Russia, with the International Space Station. And those two areas seem to have fallen down in the over the last year. Uh, and it, it, I guess from a policy perspective, if all of the other Arctic countries kind of stand up and say, no, Russia, you will now be paused. You're not going to, you know, they are the chair of the Arctic Council. What do you see this going forward as far as Arctic policy with the Arctic Council and, and, and with a new ambassador? It seems like they've got their work cut out for them being placed in this position. What What's next then uh, with Russia and the other Arctic nations? Well, that's a good question. I, I think um, I think the countries now are trying to figure that out. Um, the Arctic Council has been around for a quarter century, and it's not a security organization, and it's not a treaty organization. It's a sort of voluntary assemblage of Arctic Council members and others, many observers, indigen indigenous uh, representatives and nations. and Including China. China's a... Including observer. China, Japan, Singapore, South Korea, uh, India, many others who are interested um, in Arctic science, research, uh, navigation, transportation, uh, telecommunications, education. And uh, the Arctic Council has provided until this point sort of a broad tent for engagement uh, across all those knowledge domains, uh, particularly in, in science and research and, and understanding global change. Now, the Arctic Seven are looking at how what Arctic Council activities they can continue without Russia, um, ones that are chaired by other by the, those Arctic Seven minus Russia. It will be very difficult, for example, in areas like permafrost. Um, the permafrost, um, which is, you know, the essence of the Arctic is thawing at a very rapid rate. And uh, Russia has more permafrost than any of the other Arctic nations. And as it thaws, uh, it creates great dangers both to the infrastructure and it releases methane. Methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases. And methane released from permafrost is to a large extent not fully accounted for in global climate models today. Um, we're trying, you know, at the last conference of the parties in Glasgow, uh, many nations 
uh, the U.S., China, others, but not Russia, signed on to a global methane pledge. And with with uh, a focus on reducing methane releases, the most potent greenhouse gas, by um, 30%. And a lot of that has to do with oil and gas operations. So the U.S. is working hard, as are other countries, to reduce methane releases from oil and gas operations. Uh, Russia has a long way to go. And now we've got permafrost, which is another different source of methane release. And we need to begin to understand how to measure, monitor that, uh, even in the absence of having data directly from Russia now. So that's a, that's a major challenge. Uh, it's one the Wilson Center um, held a workshop on with Sandia National Labs not long ago, better to understand those permafrost pathways. Um, and this is an important area of work. So uh, I think we're going to have to find creative ways to engage and understand using other methods uh, of gathering data so that we can continue to have the necessary observations to understand change. Well, you mentioned that the Arctic Council is not a treaty organization and it's not a security organization, but I'd like to pivot to a treaty and security organization, namely NATO. NATO also has some news where the uh, Secretary General of NATO just a couple of weeks ago pointed out Russia is increasing its activity in the Arctic militarily. We see Finland and Sweden approaching NATO membership, it looks like. So, you know, NATO has a, you know much more of a presence, you know, in the European Arctic and, and much more of an interest there as the the European Arctic is much more inhabited than the North American Arctic. And so I think as far as a, a policy area, I think maybe it's uh, much more at the forefront of their minds. Talk a little bit about NATO and what we see on the horizon there. Well, yes, it's a, it's a very important move that uh, Finland and Sweden are now joining uh, NATO. They've long been uh, allied in, in uh, um, as non-NATO partners. Um, but for historic reasons, Finland's uh, historic neutrality, um, Sweden's own uh, particular position, they it took uh, Putin's war on Ukraine, what former NATO Secretary General Lord Robertson said, uh, Putin did in four weeks what he couldn't accomplish in four years, which is getting Finland and Sweden to join NATO. Now, the importance of that um, in the Arctic uh, really should need to be underscored because, of course, Finland and Sweden are Arctic members. Now we have a critical mass of Arctic members in NATO. Um, just a few years ago, NATO held, uh, and I spoke at NATO's first strategic foresight workshop on the Arctic, uh, which was held for the first time in 2019. So, um, and, and with 30 members in NATO, um, only a small number of whom consider are actually Arctic nations or have direct interest in the Arctic, you know that that until fairly recently was not as much a focus within NATO. But now with Putin's war in Ukraine, with the rapidly melting Arctic changing and opening up a whole new ocean in our lifetime, it's important um, for security. Um, it's important for um, environmental protection. Uh, it's important in so many ways um, that we have Finland and Sweden who are strong allies, fully capable of operating in an interoperable way with our NATO forces in the region, um, and also share our transatlantic values of freedom and democracy. 
it's actually quite ironic because if you know if you listen to this podcast and listen to our experts back in January, February, when we were talking about the possible invasion of Ukraine, the reasoning that Putin was putting forward at that time was he wanted to get assurances that NATO was not going to expand, particularly with Ukraine, and they he was worried about having more NATO on his border. Well, Ukraine may may be a little bit busy right now and not joining NATO, but he he did, like you say, uh, succeed in expanding NATO simply by invading Ukraine. How interesting and ironic is that, right? Well, speaking of Russia, you know, Russia has the longest, that, that northern border of Russia, that northern shore, is that's all Arctic. And they seem to make great use of it, both for industry, for, for military. It's, it's really a, a priority of Russian development and policy. So when, when we're thinking about climate change and what Russia is doing, it seems to me, and I'm just a layperson here, so I'm curious to see what your expertise would be on this, but it seems to me like Russia sees climate change as an opportunity that they can, uh, you know, build out and they, they've got, you know, northern uh, sea routes that they're able to exploit and, and maybe charge for and things like that. So, you know, when, you know, it seems like they're taking a different approach to the opportunities of, of climate change rather than seeing the downsides of it. Uh, you know, what's the what are the pitfalls of that? Or, you know, as far as a from a global perspective, what does the rest of the world have to watch out for if Russia is taking that view? Well, it's it's a great question, Aaron. So, I mean, Russia under President Putin has certainly seen uh, climate change as providing a near term opportunity, uh, both as the northern sea route, which hugs the shallow Russian coastline, as you said, the longest Arctic coastline, uh, Putin has very aggressive goals to transform the northern sea route into a toll road for transportation uh, from ports in Asia, like Shanghai, across to Europe, like Rotterdam. Now, the irony is that since his war began in February, um, shipping has dramatically slowed across the Northern Sea Route um, because of those risks, because others don't want to take those risks. Um, but that may that may be temporary. It's, it's too early to tell. Um, you know, at the same time, uh, and, and while one could say that as climate change makes the potential agricultural regions of Russia more productive, and and it already is. Russia is already one of the world's major global wheat producers, and um, we've seen it weaponize energy in um, this war. And wep- you know, food insecurity is on the rise because so much of the Ukrainian and uh, Russian wheat harvests are not on the global market today. Ukraine is a is a is a big wheat, and sunflower, oil, and fertilizer you know share of the, of major global markets to the Middle East. So, you know, Russia could seek to try to weaponize wheat um, in the future and weaponize food. Uh, We've already seen that happening now, and it could lead to food crises later this year, even uh, in parts of the Middle East and North Africa. So um, that, you know, on the other side, um, Putin, you know, what the short term gain in climate opportunities may lead to long term pain. So. You know, as the permafrost thaws and collapses in the Russian Arctic, 
We're seeing more and more infrastructure, which probably wasn't built to our Western standards in the first place. Anyway, um, collapse and have um, infrastructure risks, major oil spills and ecological damage are likely, um, uh, human loss of, of life and uh, is also going to be likely in that region. And so I think we had so many of those industrial cities in the Russian Arctic are built on permafrost and they weren't designed to operate as the permafrost thaws and collapses. And the investment in restoring it is undoubtedly inadequate and the construction not first rate to begin with. So we have to be increasingly concerned about that and what the spillover effects are. The other dimension is that Russia's continued to militarize and nuclearize its portion of the Arctic, which presents further risks, uh, further risks potentially beyond the Russian Arctic, because could there be an accident involving a nuclear powered icebreaker or a floating nuclear power plant of which, you know, every year there are more and more across the Russian Arctic? Well, it's fascinating and uh, always interesting to talk to you because you, you cover such a, a, a wide breadth of these issues. Um, so I always like to ask our guests as we wrap up, uh, you know, what's out there on the horizon that keeps you up at night or think think that uh, the policymakers just aren't paying enough attention to or, or may arise and could soon be an issue in the in the medium term? Uh, what, what would you what would you say is uh, on your mind today for that? Well, the two things that keep me up at night about um, Arctic activities are the first that I just mentioned, the risk uh, of, of an accident uh, in the Russian in the Russian Arctic from nuclear activities. I mean, we do, we have attention now focused on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and we know that they are taking, you know, unreasonable risks there with people's lives and with health and safety of people in the surrounding community uh, by trying to divert the electricity uh, from that nuclear power plant from Ukraine uh, towards Russia, which is just uh, a horrendous, a horrendous act, almost sort of an energy terrorist type of act. But if they would do that there in Ukraine, what would what would they do, you know, in Russia? And if you look at Russia's nuclear safety record from Chernobyl to the sinking of the Kirk submarine where all the sailors were lost, um, you know that um, they're, they've taken a lot of unnecessary risks. They've lost human lives and uh, and they also cover up and, and the information is not transparent. So I think there's uh, I, I'm concerned about that. And now I'm also, as I mentioned, concerned about better understanding the ra increasingly rapid methane release from Arctic permafrost activities and from Russian oil and gas, because runaway uh, methane release in, in the Russian Arctic um, could foil our best efforts to um, curb climate pollution. Wow. Interesting. Something to watch. Uh, really appreciate talking to you, Sherry, and you raising this with us and explaining this to us. It's always interesting, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate this expertise. Thank you for joining us, Sherry. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be with you. Sherry Goodman with the Wilson Center's Polar Institute and the Environmental Changes Security Program. Be sure to check out our other podcasts. We are available at wilsoncenter.org slash podcast. We have a number and wide ranging group of podcasts that are produced at the Wilson Center. So check them all out. Until next time, we'll see you soon.